Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me for this week's bonus episode. Eula is out this week, hopefully spending a lot of time in a pool or on a beach somewhere. But we're both really excited about this conversation I got to have with Lily Zhang. This is BTSW, Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. I'm Jeannie Yandel, and I miss Eula Scott Bino. So Lily Zhang is an organizational and diversity consultant. This means she goes into workplaces and does trainings and talks about diversity and equity. She's also the co-author of the book, Gender Ambiguity in the Workplace. And Lily and I talked about the thing that seems like it's at the root of everything we talk about on BTSW. Sexism, yes, obviously, but also this thing that's got a super close relationship to sexism, implicit bias, and how we will never get past our biases if we pretend they don't exist. We learn the ideas that sexism puts in our heads from a very, very young age as babies, as young children. You start seeing children as young as three or four um, beginning to internalize ideas that, like, girls play with certain toys and boys play with these certain toys, and girls are supposed to be like this and boys are supposed to be like this. And as we learn and relearn these ideas throughout our entire childhood and our young adulthood, um, they begin to seem normal. They begin to seem just like rules of how the world works. And this is the root of implicit bias. This is, this is why we can look at women and the first thought that flashes through our head is more likely to be mom than it is to be CEO. And it's uncontrollable. It's something that we learn from society. And it's something that we have to consciously take steps to unlearn. I don't know, I'm not sure if it's possible to reach a state where you can look at a woman and exactly 50% of the time think mom and exactly 50% of the time think CEO. But to some extent, it's not even about changing our implicit biases. It's about becoming aware of them and knowing how to act um, in response to them or, or acting against them. That's the most important thing here. And it's a skill that we don't train enough people on how to do. Oh, I have so many questions about that. <laughs> but we should move into how to have these conversations. And the question that I want to ask you is mm-hmm. how do we get rid of our biases? How do we get past this? Well, here's Please fix the, everything for us, Lily Zhang. Here's the terrible answer. We can't. I don't think it's possible to fix our biases. And this is why I believe that. We can't eliminate the thoughts going through our head until we change the system that's constantly reinforcing them. And so the fact that I can go outside and look at a billboard and see a sexualized woman on it, The fact that that's there will mean that I will never be able to let go of my bias inside my head. And is that a depressing answer? Yes, it is. But (laughs) the way that I've gotten around it is it's not our job to eliminate bias. In fact, anyone that tells you that they can eliminate bias, snake oil. I don't think it's possible. What we can do is become more aware of it. And what we can do is be proactive in adopting strategies and tactics and tips for managing our bias or even um, befriending our bias. This is a 
strange concept, but I recently wrote an article about becoming bias aware and using our bias as a roadmap for how our brains work and course correcting based on our knowledge of that. So for example, I can say with reasonable certainty that because I grew up in a in a neighborhood that didn't include many um, black or brown people, um, I am much less familiar with uh, black or brown faces. I'm terrible at remembering people's faces. I get people's names mixed up all the time. Is that a problem? Yes, it's a huge problem. And so knowing that I'm less good at that means I can put more time and effort into that. I can course correct for biases that I know that I have. I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to get rid of that bias, but that almost doesn't matter. It's about what I do in response to it. Hmm. So what tactics do you recommend for women to be able to I guess, check their own biases, to to befriend their biases even. God, I love mm-hmm. that idea. The first step is having a place where you feel like you can talk about it, right? The first step, like I try to create in my workshops, is to have a safe space where you can say to a room full of people, guess what, I'm biased. That's one of the hardest sentences for any of us to say because we don't want to admit it. We don't want to think that being biased makes us bad people. And so if we can't admit it to ourselves, right, if we can't admit it to the people who we care about, there's nothing we can do about it. So the very first step is having a place where we can be honest and say, I, for example, I don't think that masculine women are as good as you know feminine women or something like that or i think that i think that women have to be more masculine in the workplace to succeed ideas like that we need to be able to say them we need to be able to say them and to have people say that's a horrible idea or that's kind of problematic and still feel like we're okay people so the first step is making that space and the next step is being able to imagine something better. This is something that I tell folks in my workshops all the time. If you can't imagine something better, you can't unlearn what doesn't work. Hmm. And so often, we don't have a vision in our head of a better world. And so, of course, if you can't imagine a better world, you're going to learn how to put up with the one we've got. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And we can do better. We can dream. We can say, I imagine a world where, for example, people of all genders can be authentic and express themselves the way they want and be taken seriously by everyone in society. And then I can say, is that the world we have now? No. How do we get there? And that's when you start talking about productive things you can do to move us from where we are to where we dream we can be. Hmm. Well, not everyone who's listening is going to be able to go to one of your workshops. So what tactics would you recommend for, I mean, I may never get to go to one of your workshops. So what tactics would you recommend for us to be able to maybe walk through some of this so that we can make our actions better? Mm, Well, I have so many ideas for this. One is... Bring um, it. We love tactics. One is starting a support group, starting an informal group of your friends to just talk about this, to talk about this in a judgment-free zone. Um, It's not like I've copyrighted safe spaces, right? We can create those (laughs) everywhere. You can create those um, in your backyard, in your living room. Um, And just having friends or colleagues or people who you know talk about this, that's the first step. In Mm -hmm. fact, y'all can do it better than I can, right? Because you know each other already. Your friends, hopefully, your colleagues. Um, That's the first tactic that I can give. The second, which is workplace-related, is 
a lot of this is about making our workplaces into safe spaces themselves. So it's not enough to just have a little shelter in a workplace that is horrible, right? We should be able to make our workplaces into better spaces that make everyone in our workplace feel better. And as part of that structural change, we need to feel comfortable becoming change makers. We need to feel comfortable um, empowering ourselves to become the role models in the workplace. And I have so many, so many ideas for this. Um, The first one is learn to code switch effectively. What does Um, that mean? Yeah. So code switching is the idea that you use, in effect, a different language depending on who you're talking to. And so one of my favorite examples for this is, let's say your workplace doesn't give uh, women enough paid leave right? That's a common problem at many workplaces, especially maternity leave. Um, You can tell your women friends, this is about self-care. This is about caring about women. This is about helping us all feel better in this workplace. And you can go to a manager and say, hey, Steve, or hey, Jane, um, this is about employee retention, lower turnover rates, um, helping us retain um, diversity and inclusion, greater productivity. It's a different language. And you need to learn how to speak that different language to make these sorts of changes. That's what I mean by code switching. Hmm. So the second tip is um, realizing that we are, in fact, in this together and building trust in each other's potential as change makers. As part of this process, I see people all the time that are burned out. They've tried to make change in their workplace and they're exhausted. They spend every day, every minute that they're not actively working, thinking about this, and it's exhausting. It's tiring. And people ask me all the time, Lily, I can't do this myself. How do I get better at doing this myself? And I tell them the answer is, you said it yourself. You can't do it yourself. And so part of this strategy of sustaining this sort of work, sustaining this sort of change making, is building trust in each other and saying, you know what, Um, I know that uh, Martha in the sales department is doing amazing work there. It's not my job to fix the sales department. I trust Martha. We've got each other's back. We connect on Tuesdays. We share tips. It's not my fight. And expanding this outward. So, for example, um, this is a tangent, but people ask me, you know, how do you stay hopeful in a world that seems so messy and in in a world where bad news comes every day? And I have a tip for that, which is each time I feel like I'm losing faith in the world, I Google search another person doing work that I respect and I add it to a list. And so at this point, I have a very, very long list of folks doing great work that I respect who I've never even met in immigration, in economics, in workplace diversity, in higher ed. And seeing all these names of people doing great things gives me hope. And we can do that on a small scale within our companies. We can say, wow, look at all of these amazing people pushing and fighting for change. It's not just me. I can Hmm. take a break. How do you check your own biases in the workplace, particularly against other women, or I shouldn't say against other women, but towards other women. How do you check that? Well, you have to rely a lot on feedback, right? I think as self-aware as many of us are, it's really hard to know when you're being biased. And so this is part of having a trusting relationship. If I trust people to tell me when I've overstepped a limit, then I can feel comfortable being authentic and knowing that I'm going to be held accountable. When I can't trust people to tell me that, 
I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I don't know if what I'm saying is landing right. I, I'm constantly self-doubting myself. And, and even this, this even happens to me, and I teach workshops on this, right? There's no way we can escape this. And so trust is key. Building trust is key. Having a, a family of choice even um, in your workplace where you can say you can say critical things and have it be received with love. That's so difficult. Hmm. Well, I mean, a lot of the conversation we're having is work that any individual can do. That's right. To be a better ally to, you know, other women in the workplace, to sort of work on her own stuff. But what can companies do? I mean, what kind of conversations do you have with managers and CEOs about what they can do to help out with this effort? Mm-hmm. So... It's my personal belief that managers and CEOs can do the most to help with this effort, but it's hard to see on the surface because implicit bias feels like such a personal thing, right? It feels like such an individual thing. And oftentimes managers will say, I can't do anything to shape the way, you know, the entry level employee feels about gender at work. I have no connection to them and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think what managers and CEOs can do that no one else can is to create norms, is to create norms in the workplace. By shaping company culture, by shaping company policy, they can have almost the biggest impacts um, of anyone in the workplace on shaping what it's like to be an employee there. And so even things like we're going to have a company-wide um, session once a week where we can like share positive and negative experiences we've had around gender, right? It's, it's just like a small structural meeting. It's a small change. Um, but creating that, what it does is it normalizes the idea that these are conversations that we can have. Normal is the most powerful thing you can do in a company, creating normal. Hmm. Um, and managers are the best suited for creating normal. They decide what it is that makes a company a company. And so, right, you can have these types of meetings. You can um, request that you gather certain metrics. You can request that certain criteria become more important in your recruiting process. Um, you can even have a listening tour and like walk around the office once every week or two and talk to people from minority groups. Um, you are not going to have an impact as an individual as a manager, but what you will do is you will signal to every other person in the company what it is that you, and by extension, the company cares about. And that's that's one of the most effective things you can do. Hmm. What's the benefit to a company for creating that kind of normal? Like, what's in it for them? I'm kind of imagining a manager saying, so you're asking us to have meetings where we're not actually doing our work. That's right. Well, <laughs> let's reframe it a little bit. This is the code switching, right? Um, what's the return on investment for doing all of this work? Well, there's plenty of research done on diversity and inclusion and how it leads to more innovation in a workplace, better employee retention, more diverse workforces. And when you have more diverse workforces, you have a wider range of ideas. You have a wider range of people taking risks, of coming up with new things, of innovating. Now, if your company isn't a place where you want to innovate, this isn't the best frame, right? If you run a factory and all you want people to do is to push a button every day, it's not as strong of an argument. But in this day and age, we're really beginning to realize that people are the backbone of companies, right? 
people are not just labor, they are individual people. And we need to take care of these individual people. If we're not taking care of them, they can't show up to work, they can't do good work, and everyone suffers. And when we have an, a, a workplace culture that doesn't allow people to be authentic, you get this chilling effect. Mm. If we can't trust people to speak up when they're having problems, why would we, we what, like, why would we trust people to speak up when they have problems with the product you're building, right? If, for example, I'm making an app and there's a fatal flaw in the app that, you know, causes it to crash and, and messes everyone up, um, why would I share that if the last time I shared something trivial about myself, I got shut down? Right? Why would I share that to my boss? And we absolutely need to prevent these sorts of situations from happening. Um, and any manager would agree with that. You want your company to be working. You want people to be giving feedback. That's the ROI. Lily, as you're thinking through how to make this kind of culture change, what tactics do you recommend, particularly for women who want to be better allies to other women who are starting to understand that they have these biases? Right. So... In becoming better allies, we need to realize that we carry with us these seeds of implicit bias, these seeds of ideas about sexism that we learn from the world around us. And so the first step is becoming aware of our biases, of becoming aware of, for example, our beliefs that more feminine women are, are less privileged in the workplace than more masculine women, and so therefore we should all be more masculine. Becoming aware of these biased ideas and really working to befriend them, um, really working to act in ways that match up with our positive intentions of saying, I don't want to be a person in the workplace that makes women, other women, feel bad. And so I'm going to really take a second look at every email that I send. I'm really going to see if I can do anything about the dress code in my workplace. I don't want to support these ideas about gender that disadvantage women in my workplace. And so, like I said, the first step is awareness. The second step is action. And so finding ways that we can push back against these biases, recognizing that we have them, and also having hope for what we can do to create a world that is less biased and better for women and people of all genders. I really think we need to have hope. Hope is, I think, not a very bountiful resource we have right now. There's so much that's being done. There's so much progress that's being made, even if it doesn't feel like it. So have hope, keep fighting the good fight, um, keep working for gender liberation. We can make gender into something that's awesome instead of something that's terrible. That's something that I believe in. Oh, man, I love that. I want to make that a bumper sticker. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you. That was Lily Zhang. She's the co-author of the book Gender Ambiguity in the Workplace. She's also an executive coach and diversity and inclusion consultant. And she's got me thinking a lot about what it means to befriend my biases, which means, first and foremost, I need to be really clear on what those biases are. There are lots of ways to do that, though, from more reading and research to who I follow on social media to online implicit bias tests. There are some really good, well-researched ones. We'll have a load of links and resources in our newsletter, so you can find all that stuff, too. You can subscribe by emailing us at btsw at kuow.org. BTSW is a production of KUOW in Seattle. 
Our senior producer is Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Special thanks also to Christy Scheuer, who writes all of the web posts for the podcast. Thank you so much, Christy. Brendan Sweeney is our director of new content and innovation. And special thanks to Michaela Kiner and Ruchika Tulsian, who have been advising us all season. The podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Cassia Gordon. Our graphics designer is Tio Popescu. I'm Jeannie Yandel. You will be back next week. Until then, keep up the good fight. <laughs>